if you're visiting, my name is Peter, and welcome to the Springs. Our church is a part of a larger family named Every Nation, and we are here to help people grow in being followers of Christ, family-focused, and fishers for men. We're going to dive into God's Word. We've been going through Genesis all year. We're going to pick back up in our last mini-series of the year, going from 40 all the way through 50 in the next five weeks. And I have the privilege of bringing Josh Guerrero up. <clears throat> Josh is in, uh, in the middle of No Shave November here. And he's got the, the Charles Spurgeon beard going. Yeah. And the passion. And I think you're going to be delighted in God's word as Josh preaches. Thank you, Josh. Can you hear me? Is that, can you hear me? Is that a thing? All right. Um, how about our worship team real quick, guys? Come on, one more time. I serve on that worship team. I'm a part of that most Sundays. Not today, but most Sundays. I'm a part of that. That was awesome. I got wrecked. In my mind, I was like, man, I'm going to be all snotty and messed up and stuff when I go up there. That's not a bad thing necessarily, but um, nonetheless, uh, I bless you guys. It's a pleasure and an honor to be up here. Uh, can we give another hand also for Peter? Yeah. Pastor Peter. Um, Peter is a man that I've grown to trust and I've grown to love as a friend and as a pastor. And uh, he loves God. He loves you guys. He loves the church. And most of all, he has a heart for the gospel. And I'm humbled. I cry every time I do this because, you know, the man is, is an inspiring man. And he's been extraordinarily impactful to my life uh, in the three years that I've been here. Um, he's just been an extraordinary impact to my life. So thank you. The last time I was up here, this is my second time being able to preach um, I was praised. We have like a little kind of sermon critique. It's like for constructive criticism. I was praised on my brevity, on how quick I was in and out. And Peter used the age old saying, those who are brief will be invited back. And so that's hard for me because I come from a culture where you're like in that 45 to an hour range. And, uh, and here we kind of like that, uh, that 25 to 35 range. And uh, so this time I was kind of like, hey, you know, Pete, can I, can I extend that time out to, you know, that, that 45? Uh, I was met with a swift no. And so uh, <laughs> with that, I, I'd say that to say we need to dive straight in because we have a, a good amount of stuff that we want to go over today and see how God is, is, is kind of moving in Genesis and what that means for us. And if, uh, as Gen- Peter mentioned before, we're in Genesis, we're coming back into Genesis from the Radical series. And if you guys did not get a chance to listen to that. Uh, it was three weeks, the three weeks prior to this, go back to the podcast and listen to that. Uh, that is, is just, Peter took three weeks to preach incredible sermons that I think could really shape the culture of our church in a you know, day-to-day effort and how we view God and how we view our purposes. And so go back, listen to that, soak that up, uh, participate with what we're doing, uh, the pledges and things that are coming uh, out of that series, because it was awesome. But back to Genesis. We're in Genesis chapter 40 and 41, and we're going over the life of Joseph. And Joseph is a unique character. He takes up the latter third of Genesis. And I want to dive straight in. We'll kind of debrief and catch back up after we read. But I want to go to Genesis 40, and we're going to read verses 12 through 15. So if you would, uh, if you have your Bibles open, if you have your device, turn it on. But if you would do me the favor either way uh, and stand in the honoring, in the tradition of honoring God's preserved word for us. And if you don't have it, it's up here on the screen. I'm going to go ahead and start. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head 
and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit." Uh, you can be seated. And as you're seated, if you would just say a quick prayer with me, Father, thank you for the reading of your word. Uh, thank you for it preserved in our lives. I ask that you would allow our hearts to be open to this and drain me of everything that's Josh so that I could preach what you have for me um, and for everyone in here. Love you. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Um, all right. So Joseph, we're picking back up in the narrative of Joseph. And to kind of give you some context of where we're coming from, We see Joseph a few chapters earlier uh, as an introductory character, being a beloved son to his father, Israel. His father, Israel, favors him, and that favoritism kind of creates some tension between him and his brothers, and that tension gives way to some jealousy. That jealousy gives way to some hate, and we see his brothers beat him, throw him into a pit, which would have been like a a dried cistern or like a, a dried reservoir, and then sell him into slavery without his father's knowledge. In Egypt, where he was sold into slavery, he comes into a a, a role as a servant in Potiphar's house, where God kind of has this thing where where Joseph takes one step forward in the midst of taking 10 steps back. And he kind of steps a little bit forward and kind of becomes like a favored servant in Potiphar's house. Well, as he's tending to, to the knees there in Potiphar's house, Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him. And uh, Joseph, in an act of great faithfulness to God, resists. He does what any wise man does. And his Bible literally says that he runs. Uh, so guys, FYI, the Bible's pretty practical at sometimes too. Um, as he runs, uh, she grabs a part of his clothing. And then we have a back and forth word battle between an Egyptian officer's wife and a lowly Hebrew servant as she accuses him of raping her or attempted rape. And then we find Joseph in prison. Uh, and again, again, we find God kind of giving him like a one step forward and 10 step back kind of deal. Because even in prison, where we find Joseph is becoming in what would kind of be considered like a trustee position. He's tending to other prisoners. He's serving in the jail while being a prisoner himself under an officer at the prison. And so where we find Joseph in this text in chapter 40 is tending to other prisoners, two specific prisoners being the Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and the Pharaoh's baker. And where we find him is, is kind of tending to these men through a time. I don't, not familiar with how long that time is, but one day Joseph comes in and both these men have like a, a downward countenance. They're, they're, they're looking bad. They're looking a little timid. They're looking a little scared. So Joseph asks, Why? And the men tell him, hey, the night before we had simultaneous dreams. And these simultaneous dreams are freaking us out because they had eerie similarities. And we're not, we're kind of pushed far away from the magicians and from the fortune tellers that are in Pharaoh's court. And so we don't have any way to know what it means, but it's weird in the South that they're so similar. And Joseph, in a complete statement of faithfulness to God, despite his circumstance, says, aren't interpretations God? Don't they belong to God? So he says, tell me the dreams. The cupbearer says, okay, well, I see these three branches, and out of these three branches come these grapes. So I get the grapes, and I push them down into Pharaoh's cup, and I put it 
into his hands. And Joseph's like, I got this. It, it, it means that the, the branches are three days. And in three days, Pharaoh's going to lift your head up and promote you back to where you formerly were. And that's what we read. And the baker, the poor baker, kind of seeing the optimism, was wanting to ride the coat. He was like, well, you should do mine too. Do mine too. I could assume there's some excitement there seeing the optimism we found in, uh, in the cupbearer's dream. Uh, and he says, look, I, there's, there's three cake baskets on top of my head, and the uppermost one is filled with cake, and there are birds coming down to eat out of the basket. And Joseph's like, well, baker, um, your dream is also Pharaoh lifting up your head, but he's going to lift your head up off of you, and uh, he's going to kill you uh, in three days, represented from the three uh, cake baskets. So three days passes, and of course, Pharaoh's birthday is that day. We read that in the Bible, and he calls these men. And sure enough, the cupbearer is restored to his former place, and the baker is hung, and birds come and eat from his head, kind of manifesting the most detailed aspect of that dream. And the only promise that Joseph requested from these men was that they would remember him. Well, more the cupbearer than the baker. But... (laughs) that the cupbearer would remember him and that he would mention F- Joseph to Pharaoh so that he could get out of prison. And, and kind of where we find Joseph is really in a hard place, especially considering where we first see him in the Bible as a man filled with optimism, filled with dreams. Where we find him in the Bible, usually scholars kind of agree that he would have been in his... Um, mid to late teens. And so we see a teenage boy that's having these dreams about him being, you know, the show and his brothers are bowing to him. And we find that back in Genesis 37. And where we find Joseph now is just such a sharp contrast to where he originally viewed his life going. And in that, we kind of find that the Bible reveals some aspects, some characteristics of God that we usually don't think of. We usually don't even come to, come to grips with Uh, when we perceive and think about God. I'm going to let a smarter man than me kind of expound on that because, hey, that's always better. And if I get the Victor Hamilton quote, uh, Victor Hamilton's a brilliant man. He wrote an incredible uh, commentary to Genesis. And he says, Genesis 39 through 41 demonstrates that a facile explanation of reward and punishment based on moral choices alone is not adequate to understand God's relationship with his people. Where we kind of find ourselves in Joseph's dilemma is going to show us a little bit about how God desires to interact with God and how different it is than we think God interacts with us. So many of us walk around and we kind of view God as an ethereal, hands-off judge that simply looks at us, kind of gives us the option to do right and to do wrong. And as we do right, we feel closer connected to him. And as we do wrong, we feel disconnected from him. That's why so many times we see people saying, okay, I've done the right thing, so I I feel pretty good about how I'm living my life, so I'm going to go to church. I might even be involved in in growth group, be involved in the community at my church, but but then I I make a mistake, so I need to take a step back, so I feel a little disconnected from God. Then I make another mistake, so I need need, maybe I'm going to skip growth group this week because I feel a little convicted about where I'm at. I make another mistake, so I'm I'm going to skip church this week. I mean, I had a, a long night Saturday. And so, but now I made another choice, so I'm feeling a little bit better. I'm going to go to church today. And I made a little bit better choice, and now I'm feeling pretty good. I think God's pleased with me now as I've, I've made some good decisions, and, and now I'm, I feel like I'm back now. I've, I've made some great choices. 
I've done the right thing. And that is such a contrasting view to what we see in Genesis 40 and 41. As we don't see an ethereal, hands-off God judge, although that is a part of God's character. I don't want you to think that God is some person that is just all loving and all mercy. He has an equal amount of love as he does with his judgment and love of righteousness. But what we see in Genesis 40 and 41 is God playing the role of a hands-on, loving father who's crafting Joseph's life brick by brick and architecting his story so that he could bring bring redemption out of it. It's a very different thing than what we see when we view God so many times. And to highlight this, I wanted to bring something uh, out from chapter 39. And chapter 39 is where we see Joseph's downward spiral in Potiphar's house um, with Potiphar's wife. It's very unique that in chapter 39, and we're not going over 39, but we need to bring this into 40 and 41 to kind of understand things. Verses 2, 21, and 24 all have a very specific statement, which is the Lord was with Joseph. And I love verse 21. This says, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. In my view, that's a hard love. That is a tough love if I've ever seen one. When I look at my wife, for those of you, I'm sure it's like multiplied exponentially when you look at your kids. If I see something, oh, by the way, being here in those three years, I met, fell in love, and married my wife. Yeah. Boom. All right. So, sorry. Break from the sermon so that I could give a shout out uh, to that beautiful lady right there. It's been two months, guys, so I'm still working the brownie points right now. All right. So, um, when, when I view my wife, when you guys view your kids, we see them afflicted and hurting and we have everything inside of us. A desire rages up to defend and to protect. And we usually do that because as we see the life of our loved ones, we begin to see them afflicted and, uh, and burdened by things that we have no control over. So we rush in to protect and to try to save. And God's not that way. You see, God has control, knowledge over all things. Psalm 139 says he hemmed us in before and behind. He knows exactly where we're at. In fact, he crafted us to be right there. The Bible marks in Joseph's life that in the midst of his descent, God was with him, walking through the important and hurtful parts of his life. And it's important for us to see that because when we look at God, sometimes we view God as the, the driver of the emergency vehicle. We see God as the driver of the ambulance or the driver of the fire truck, that when we start losing control of our life and when chaos starts to ensue and we feel that we haven't necessarily guided our own life right or we're not being rewarded the way we think we should be rewarded by God for our good decisions or we're scared because we've made bad decisions, we begin to cry out to God and say, God, save me. God, where are you? God, come help me, as we most assuredly should. I'm not saying you shouldn't cry out to God. But when we cry out to God thinking that he's been so hands-off watching you formulate, craft your own life, and then he says, okay, I've seen you done enough trouble. I'm going to go ahead and swoop in now and save the day. It does an injustice to who God really is and who he's saying he is in something and in a chapter in Scripture like Genesis 40 through 41. Because when we see that God, we see a God that crafts the story of our life through the hurt and through the pain in order to bring about redemption in our story. 
some of you might be, might be feeling right now, well, I'm a little different than Joseph, though, because Joseph, see, Joseph resisted temptation. There's a reason why you would think that God comes to his rescue in the midst of a struggle because Joseph did the right thing. And bud, you're up there talking and you don't know that down here, I live a life where I don't do the right thing all the time. And all I'd have to say to you is, is friend, I'm with you. Everyone here is. The reality that we see in Joseph's life is that God was taking circumstances in the life of an imperfect man who was having a moment of righteousness and walking him through a redemptive process. That's where we see Joseph. Not a holy man who God couldn't you know, let go of and had to save through all of his troubles. We see an imperfect man who was having a moment of righteousness who God was walking through a redemptive process. So I'm with you and Joseph's with you and we're all with you. And don't get me wrong, now, now when, when God sees Joseph, God took Joseph through that path. Sometimes us, our choices take us through our own path. I'll, I'll totally give you that. And do I think that sin is a part of God's plan for our life? No. But redemption is a part of God's plan for our life. And there's this majestic place between our own decisions and God knowing everything where he crafts in the midst of our mistakes, in the midst of our failures, a story of redemption into our lives. In, uh, in December of 2013, my stepdad was diagnosed with late stage uh, colon, intestinal, and liver cancer. And although he was always a, a great man, he was always a kind man, and he was always a gentle man, both in how he treated people and in the chivalrous way. Um, but he had never treated God as anything to be had. He had never sought after God. As one of those guys said he was Catholic, but you know, there was no evidence of faith in his life like anywhere. And the next few weeks as he was diagnosed with cancer, he was going to proceed to go on an up and down battle that was going to be hard. But something began to happen during that time. He began to go to church. And he began to seek God and seek prayer. And God started doing something in his heart that nothing else prior to cancer could do. And one night specifically, I remember going to visit him in the hospital um, in what would turn out to be a very hard patch in his cancer battle, like a hard time. And I'm not sure if, if Rachel was there, but I know my mom was there. I know there was someone else there, and I asked him to step out of the room for just a second. Um, and I got to sit down next to him, and I began to walk him through what it meant to be saved. And I started walking him through. You, you, you understand that although you've been a good man, you've made mistakes, and sin marks your life. And he said, yeah. I said, and you understand that Christ came and lived the perfect life that you should have lived. And that he died the death you should have died to restore you, forgive your sins, to bring you back into his kingdom. And I believe that night, my stepfather became a son of the Most High. I would like to say that that story has 
a happy ending by earthly standards. Um, but two months later, my stepfather passed away uh, from intestinal, liver, and colon cancer. And it rocked my family. It hurt me. It hurt my mom. It hurt his kid and his family. It even hurt my biological father, who had become friends with my stepdad, just as a testimony to how great of a man my stepfather was. But as time passed, and we got a bird's-eye view of the situation, in hindsight, being so much clearer than what we see in the midst of our chaos and our hurt, we were able to see that God had crafted Raymond Aguilar's life for this moment. And although cancer was going to be perceived as something scary and hurtful to us, to God, cancer was the avenue that he was going to use to redeem a past that was full of neglect to a father and redeem an entire eternity in what we thought was the loss of 15 or 20 years, God said, look, I'd rather give you an eternity of divine and holy satisfaction than 15 or 20 years of godly neglect or neglecting God and living a life where the Dallas Cowboys are your ultimate source of satisfaction. God moved in my stepdad's life to redeem a past that had neglected God and then redeem an entire future, an entire eternity. In Joseph's life, we see um, two years later that the cupbearer had not remembered Joseph. And two years later, Pharaoh had a dream. Something really incredible happened. The, uh, the cupbearer said, this day I remember my offenses. When no one else could, could interpret the dream, he said, there's a Hebrew man in that jail. And when I was afflicted and tormented by what I saw at night, he answered and gave me clarity. So they called him. So they called him. And he went to Pharaoh. And we're going to go to Genesis 41. We're going to go to Genesis 41, and we're going to read uh, 25 through 28. It says, then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh where he is about, what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years. And the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. That is a sharp contrast from the proud, ubristic 17-year-old we see having dreams in Genesis 37 when he's like, guys, I had a dream and you were all bowing to me. Guys, I had some hay and it stood up and then all the other hays were like. (laughs) And the contrast we see from that young man to this 30-year-old man, 13 years of testing faith. And out of it, we see a faithful, humble man emerge. And there's a huge contrast to the dream, you know, 
seeker that we see in 37 to this man. And it was a necessary thing because when we see Joseph at 30 years old in chapter 41 of Genesis, we see a man who's going to see the dreams he had at 17 manifest. But we're also going to see a 30-year-old man wise enough to accept his brothers with humility and wisdom. And we see the story of Joseph unfold with a God who specifically puts parts of his story in there to bring about redemption for himself and for his entire family. Um, What does that have to do with me? Uh, You might be sitting there kind of going, well, that's all good and great, but I don't get what a little Hebrew boy or Hebrew man in the Bible interacting with God in this really cool way uh, has to do with me. Um, Matthew chapter 26. We find Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, uh, burdened, sweating drops of blood. (coughs) And his prayer is so unique and beautiful. First, he prays to God and says, God, Father, if possible, take this cup from me. Christ looked forward and understood, okay, I understand that I'm going to get beaten. I understand I'm going to get scourged. I understand the tragedy and the horrificness of the cross. And God, I'm asking you, if there's any way that you can take this from me, please do it. And the second part of the prayer, but your will be done. You see, in Christ's life, as the absolute perfect lamb, with no sin, with no sin, a spotless, precious sacrifice was God placed the wrath of God on him. See, Christ knew moving forward, I've done nothing, but I'm fixing to have to go to the cross and bear the weight of sin on my shoulders while hanging from a tree. And he said, God, if there's any way that you can take this from me, take this from me, but your will be done. And in the understanding, Jesus moves forth, taking the sin of the world on his shoulders, and he redeems mankind forever. And we start to see what it was that Joseph was pointing to when we go so many thousands of years later into the future, when we see God, the beloved son of his father, the favorite and the prince of heaven, come down, hated by his people, thrown into a pit of a tomb, and then ascend to the right hand of the kingdom of God. When we look at Joseph's life, Joseph is saying, man, Uh, You know, I I am struggling through my time, but I place faith in Christ because God, my loving heavenly father, is crafting my life into a story of redemption for me and my family. But when we look forward to the same position in Christ, it's Christ saying, man, I place my faith in my father so that when I move forward and I take the sin of the world, I'm not just redeeming a person or a family or a people group, but I'm redeeming humanity for an eternity reaching back into their past, claiming every instance of sin and every instance of failure, and then I'm moving forward and taking back their future so that they don't live another 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years in worldly satisfaction. But they come and place faith in me with a growing dependence on me 
for their eternal security. Um, in Joseph's life, we see a man's life who's crafted, a man whose life is crafted by God in order to bring out redemption from it. And I love what Nancy Guthrie uh, said. She's an incredible author. Uh, she said, Joseph uh, not only knew that God was with him, but also was confident in God's plan to use him. That confidence gave him peace as he waited for God to work out his plan even as that plan brought him pain. Uh, today, there's some of us in here that are facing things that are hard. And we know Christ. And we may view Christ, we may view God as some hands-off figure that's merely watching us, but in reality... God is a loving father with his hands so far deep in your life that he's crafting out your circumstances just as they are, hemming you behind and in front to be right where you are so that he pushes you to rely less on you and more on him to redeem your situation, not by making everything right, but by pointing you to the one who makes all things new. And there's another group. A group that hasn't quite fully surrendered themselves to this God because tragedy has ensued. And the hurts and the pains of this world have left us with a skepticism that says, why? Why would a good God allow this to happen to me? Why did this person have to leave so soon? And the tragedy of our life has shaped our view of God. Well, friend, unbeknownst to you, unknowing to you, God crafted that moment and that life for moments just like this. When he calls you to not make sense of your life by your own wisdom, but to bring your life, your heartache, your heart to him, to the one who makes sense of our heartache, our loss, our hurt. In this process that we see Joseph go through, Jesus go through, that we go through, God is looking at our lives, building it brick by brick so that he could call us back to himself. And what's really cool is when we look at Joseph's life, I'm going to read one more verse. I'm going to get the 41, 50 through 52 up here. 50, before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called 
Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. When we view our life through the context and through the view of a loving father crafting our lives, we see that the hardships are only there so that we can bring them to him so that he can say, it's gone. I make sense of it. You rely on me. You take your eyes off of what's difficult and you rely on me and I will redeem every bit of what you've gone through. And in your place of affliction, I will bring forth fruit that will redeem an entire eternity on your behalf, friend. Yes. That's who God is. So as, the, uh, as some growth group leaders, uh, whoever wants to come up, can feel free to come up. I want us to consider those things. And if you have anything on your heart, that you have a burden for, anything that the word spoken today kind of stirred up and made you question and you want some answers, we're here to pray with you and begin to walk out this process of redemption that takes us on a journey that makes sense of a life that may have been hurt, that may have been pained, but the Father takes in and redeems in majesty and in strength and power. Father, thank you so much for um, these guys, God. Thank you so much for this people. Thank you for your son who died to redeem our lives. Thank you that you have intricately crafted our lifetime to lead us to moments of reliance and dependence on you. That you've crafted our lives to be redeemed out from our circumstances and into your loving hands.